0: The dot-com bubble of the 1990s was a wild time, man. It made some people rich, you know, like Amazon. And it made some
1: people miserable, like the good folks over
0: at pets.com.
1: Three letters, and we all know what they mean. But where did the use of LOL to designate laughing even come from? And is the abbreviation done evolving? Comic books
0: have been around for a long time. And while characters like the Batmans and Supermans of the world have more or less been around for the long haul, some of the players have had short yet impactful runs, like gorillas. Yes, the animal gorillas. I'll explain. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, every generation is unique. And we've talked about this a lot on the show, but but in my opinion, our generation, meaning millennials who are between 30 and 40 years old, we are extremely unique for one big reason, the rise of the internet. Jay, we are the last generation, think about this, we're the last generation to grow up without mainstream internet. I mean, really think about that. It seems so insane today to think that we used to just have to sit there in boredom in the bathroom. I mean, nothing to do. No, no computer in your pocket. Jay, like my elementary school experience in the early to mid-1990s was largely void of the internet. And, and so many of my memories of using the internet probably start in like, I don't know, 1998-ish. And it was really just so I could look up song lyrics or see when a movie was playing at the local movie theater. So how about you? What are some of your first
1: Memories of using the internet. Well, I'll say that the art of the crossword puzzle on the toilet is a lost art, so I was never bored on the toilet. But mm. I will say that my earliest internet memory is probably has to do with just online messaging. That was really big whenever we were in middle school and high school. Uh, things like AOL and stuff like that. I know you used something different, some weird mm-hmm. messaging site or something. We were a little behind. Like I, I didn't really have like high speed internet at my house until I was like in college or something. And yeah, kids today, man,
0: they don't know about dial up. So like, you couldn't be on the internet and be on the phone at the same time. So you're constantly screaming at your mom, mom. I'm trying to download a song on Napster! (laughs) It's got four hours
1: (laughs) left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jay, the early days of the internet were, in many ways, like the wild, wild west. There was so much promise, but there was also so much risk. And often, the latter outshined the former until it was too late. This time in internet history is referred to as the dot-com bubble. So quickly, what was the dot-com bubble? Well, it really refers to the period of time between the years 1995 and 2000, so the rise of mainstream internet use. During this time, the stock market went crazy as investors pumped as much money as they could as quickly as they could into unproven internet-based startups. All with the optimistic speculation that these companies would utilize the newly found power of the internet to achieve profits never before seen. Online retail, sign me up, baby. And when the boom was ending in around 2002, some companies like Amazon, with a sound business plan and a defined market, rode the waves of uncertainty to eventually prosper. But others, in fact, most, Like the infamous story of today's subject, Pets.com did not. Jay, Pets.com went from the initial public offering or IPO to complete liquidation failure in just 268 days. Founded in 1998, Pets.com, like many other bubble companies, launched with such promise. Their model of selling pet food, pet toys, pet accessories, pet, you name it, through an online store made tons of sense. Why drive to the pet store anymore when you could have it delivered to your door? Starting out with a five-city regional advertising campaign that quickly doubled into 10 cities across the U.S., Pets.com became an overnight success, at least in terms of financial support. Led by its cute sock puppet mascot, who, I will add, was a Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon in 1999, much like our friend from a previous episode, your guy Ask Jeeves.
1: I'll never forget the Jeeves-Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade float.
0: Yeah, me too. And led by their mascot, once again, the cute sock puppet, Pets.com had raised over $80 million in its February 2000 public stock offering. The powerful stock number in the year 2000 came on the heels of the evolution of Pet.com's advertising strategy. As you can tell, that strategy was this, become part of the national conversation by making the biggest splash possible. And Jake, Splash, they did. In January 2000, Pets.com launched a $1.2 million commercial during the Super Bowl, a very good commercial that USA Today ranked as the best overall commercial during that year's big game, but also a very expensive commercial for a company that hadn't yet figured out how to actually make money. Jay, for a company that basically came and went in under a year, the problems came on quickly for Pets.com. For starters, it simply suffered from a lack of a business plan that made any real sense. Launched without any idea how to ship large dog food in an affordable way, it was faced with a crucial question. So really, why would someone pay for the same dog food they could get in their hometown and then also pay a huge price for shipping? Well, Pets.com just did not ever come up with an answer for that. In fact, their plan to address that... Was insane The company decided that it would initially Offer free shipping and take a bath On profit to build customer Loyalty and then Eventually when they had you on the hook They would raise the shipping Rate to an extremely High rate Betting that ah, you're used to it by now You probably
1: still that, order Because that definitely will work <laughs> There will be no problems <laughs> at all from that.
0: If it sounds dumb it, it was It never worked Jay, other issues plagued Pets.com like an uneven profit margin model and paying far too much for way too much warehouse space. So by November 2000, just nine months after an initial stock price of $11 per share, Pets.com's stock was worth just pennies at 19 cents a share. By the time it was all over, Pets.com lost more than $300 million of investment capital and cost roughly 300 people their jobs. And it still stands as the greatest failure from the dot-com bubble. But Jay, I know what you're thinking. What happened to the sock puppet?
1: Yeah, I mean, somebody's got to own the rights to that little
0: bit. Well, according to my research, Bar None Incorporated, An auto loan firm bought the rights to the Sock Puppet for $125,000 and then gave the Sock Puppet a new slogan. Everybody deserves a second chance. And you can actually purchase Sock Puppet dolls right now on
1: eBay for about five bucks. So Dave, we know today that LOL is shorthand for laughing out loud and is often used on social media or when texting to designate when we think something is funny. But not all of us have always known that LOL stands for laughing out loud, right? Yeah, sometimes you got to learn the hard way. Um, So you brought up
0: one of the initial ways that you use the internet was to use internet chats. That's when people started to use things like LOL. And so a girl that I was interested in at the time when I was a little kid uh, had told me that she needed to go. Her dad had gotten really sick and unexpectedly passed away. And so I responded, oh, man, I'm so sorry, LOL, thinking it meant lots of love,
1: it didn't. Yeah, and you didn't pick up on any context clues that followed. We
0: never talked again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dave, I was wondering the other day, uh, where did LOL come from? Like, how did it make it into our culture? And the short answer is... We don't really 100% know, but I'm going to tell you the long answer, right? So, Dave, we sort of have a couple benchmarks of when LOL came into our world. Like, we know for sure that in May of 1989, a Canadian sort of newsletter site called FidoNet published a list of citations that can be used on the internet, which included LOL as standing for laughing out loud. And as far as we know, this is the first organized attempt online to standardize LOL well. Now, some other abbreviations from that original list have stuck around, too, such as BTW, by the way, BRB, be right back, and AFK, away from keyboard. While sadly, some others have fallen by the wayside or evolved into something else, such as LMTO, laughing my tush off, and RAO, rolling all over, which still exist in modified forms, or LTNT, long time no type, And WLCM, welcome, which are nowhere to be found on the modern internet... Now, Dave, behind this, there is a man who claims to be the first person to ever use LOL on the internet, speaking like the modern use of it. And that person is a man from Canada named Wayne Pearson, who claims that in the mid-1980s, on a Canadian messenger system called Viewline, an online friend that he only remembers as being named Sprout posted something so funny that it caused Pearson to laugh so hard that his laugh (laughs) echoed off the walls of his kitchen, prompting the first typing of LOL. Now, Pearson does not have any records of this interaction, sadly. And so the legend remains just that, a legend. But to this day, no one has come along and claimed to use the term earlier than Pearson. So Dave, today, LOL is obviously commonplace in our language. It's even a part of the modern Merriam-Webster dictionary alongside other abbreviations such as OMG and WTF. I won't tell you what that stands for because we're a family show. But realistically, the lines defining it have sort of been obscured. I mean, Dave, think about it. When was the last time you sent LOL in a message when you're actually laughing out loud? I mean, we hardly ever do, right? Like, LOL has evolved in a way to be a placeholder for acknowledgement we typically convey to a speaker during a real conversation, such as like a "Mm mm-hmm or a head nod. You know, LOL is a signal in a way or a softener during the conversation to designate that we've received the message from the speaker. John McWhorter in a special for CNN describes LOL in this way. What began as signifying laughter morphed into easing tension and creating a sense of equality. So today, Dave, we use LOL now more to empathize with those that we're talking to rather than using it literally to signify that we're laughing out loud. Using text to signify laughter isn't exactly new. We've been doing it in some places of the world for thousands of years. Even Shakespeare commonly threw a ha-ha into his plays to designate laughter. But in the internet age where communication is all about speed, it's no wonder why this sort of shorthand communication took off. As more modern social media began to emerge and the internet got faster, LOL transformed into a culture. People online would describe themselves as lolling instead of laughing, for example. And Gretchen McCulloch in her book, Understanding the New Rules of Language, says this about why LOL has stuck around for so long. LOL is very functional, McCulloch said. It expresses something that didn't quite have a way of being expressed before in writing in an obvious sort of way. And there's a lot of things in what I think of as the LOL family that all became more popular in internet writing, like haha, which sort of existed before the internet but wasn't popular in the same sort of way ha-ha-ha or smiley faces or emojis. All these things express what you're feeling and thinking about the message you are sending or receiving. So the future of LOL? Well, Dave, who's really to say? If there's one thing about the internet, it's that it evolves and it changes throughout the years. So it's hard to say what LOL could become in the next 10 or 25 years. Even just in its short lifespan, the abbreviation has evolved greatly And I would think it probably still has plenty more evolving left to do.
0: Yeah, I think we could still change and evolve some of the current ones. So like WTF that you brought up earlier, I think we could change that. I think it could be WTF, uh, wow, that's fun when you had a good time. Or WTF, if you're at like a state fair, where's the funnel cake? Or you could do uh, WTF, where's the flashlight if the power goes out?
1: Yeah. You know, my father-in-law has a, a, a coaster that he uh, uses. He has a pool, and so he's he's always got a drink in the coaster, and it says WTF. And then I get closer, and I see a little parentheses, where's the food?
0: <laughs> so, see? You know, so it is what you want.
1: Doesn't make any sense. Still confused by it, but, you know, it exists.
0: All right, Jay, we've talked about comic books from time to time on the show. And to be honest with you, I've never really been much of a comic book guy. I respect it, though, unlike many other things that I make fun of on this show, like aliens. (laughs) don't respect aliens. Uh, But I, I even have a friend that started his own comic book company, believe it or not. So that's really cool. It's a great artistic, creative endeavor for him. I think it's neat. But how about you? I feel like even though I've never seen you read or even look at a comic book, I feel like you're going to say that you're a comic book guy.
1: Yeah, uh, back in the day, like growing up and stuff, um, I did have some and enjoyed
0: it. And Okay, so define some. You said you had some. Are we talking like three? Like you owned
1: three comics? <laughs> no, I mean... You know, every once in a while, I, I don't know how many. It's just like every once in a while, I you get another you, one. I didn't count them. I I'm not like you, a collector. I bet you you didn't own one. No, I did. I had a bunch. I just well, well I'll call your parents. <laughs> why I'll
0: call why your would parents?
1: I lie we'll say, about that?
0: They'll say comic books. We didn't. Have, we weren't. They weren't allowed in this house. He never had any comic. <laughs> it books. It
1: doesn't make any sense. Why would, I would lie any? about that?
0: <laughs> well, I, people lie about weird <laughs> things all the time. But Jay, my dad did grow up as a comic book guy, a real comic book guy, not like you. <laughs> uh, and he once mentioned something to me about comics that I really find fascinating, and I think you and the rest of our Commute audience will as well. So what is that, you ask? Well, simply put, it's this. There was a time in the history of comic books where there was a very strange love for and relationship between comic books and Gorillas. Going back to the early days of comic books, Jay, it wasn't all that uncommon to find storylines that might feature an animal, like a gorilla, mainly used as threats to the hero of a certain story. Uh, One such appearance of a gorilla was in an early Wonder Woman comic book in 1944, where Wonder Woman faced off against a mutant gorilla named Giganta, so, you know, it did happen. Jay, this era of comic books is referred to as the Silver Age of Comics. The Silver Age, meaning a time period running from the 1950s to the 1970s, and it was dominated by comic book creators looking for and trying to exploit trends, really anything, to help boost comic book sales and get them into the mainstream. It was also dominated, though, by a unique call for creativity. Here's what I mean by that. Often, comic books would design a cover and then assign that cover to a writer to base the story around it. So cover, then story, almost in reverse of how you'd think it was done. This process, often referred to as a gimmick strategy, led to some, let's say, interesting storylines. Jay, eventually this gimmick-based process led us to the real turning point moment in the guerrilla comic book relationship. In 1951, one of the most prolific gimmick-styled comic book editors, a guy named Julius Schwartz, launched perhaps the most famous and successful gimmick comic book in history. Schwartz, working on issue number eight of a comic book named Strange Adventures, launched a tale called The Incredible Story of an Ape with a Human Brain. The cover for the issue was of a gorilla in a cage holding a sign that read, and I quote, Ruth, please believe me. I am the victim of a terrible scientific experiment. Signed, Ralph. Jay, the issue would become one of the best sellers and most iconic covers in comic book history. Schwartz, seeing the success unfold in real time, thought, well, heck, let's try it again. He put another gorilla on a comic cover the following year. Another hit. According to reporting from Comics Alliance, it was then, after that second one, that Schwartz knew he had found something that was going to work. Comic editorial director Erwin Donenfeld called me and said, you know what, let's try it again, said Schwartz. At this point, all the editors actually wanted to use gorilla covers. So Donenfeld said, well, no more than once a month. And, Jay, the one-gorilla-a-month rule was actually launched and quickly pushed to its limits. While comics like Strange Adventures soon became known for gorilla covers, it soon spread to more popular comics like Batman fighting a gorilla boss in Batman issue number 75 and Wonder Woman again, but this time playing baseball with the gorilla (laughs) in Wonder Woman number 78. And, Jay, from there, I guess you could say gorillas in comics went, ready for it? Bananas, (laughs) Superboy, The Flash, Animal Man, Doom Patrol, you name it, even Superman. Seemingly, every popular comic book of the era started to incorporate gorillas anywhere that it could. In fact, just Julius Schwartz alone oversaw a total of 22 comic book editions featuring gorillas on the cover by the time 1970 had rolled around. And strangely enough, as gorillas entered more of the mainstream entertainment front in America, with the release of the first Planet of the Apes movie in 1968, they started to actually exit the comic book industry. Comic book writers from the Silver Age were fired, retired, or moved on to other things, and with them went the slight obsession with gorillas. Looking back on it now, Jay, comic book experts really can't nail down why gorillas were so popular for such a long stretch in comics. Entertainment company Screen Rant's best guess is that perhaps on a subconscious level, gorillas were a stepping stone in the direction that our thirst and interest for entertainment as a country was going, leading to larger sci-fi projects like Star Wars or Star Trek. Others seem to think that maybe gorillas were easier to believe in as villains than other created monsters or aliens. So maybe gorillas made comics more accessible, easier for readers to connect with. Regardless of reason, though, Jay, you can't argue with, for some reason, it worked. And it worked for a long time. But I will say, we are left with some hilarious treasures from that time in comic history. The most bizarre one that I could find was from 1966, a comic book series called Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen. That's a great name, by the way, for a comic book. And Jay, this particular issue is called The Bride of Jungle Jimmy. Okay, get ready for this. The cover features Jimmy Olsen and a gorilla in a marriage ceremony in the woods. With Jimmy saying, Superman, this joke has gone far enough. I don't want to marry a female King Kong. To which Superman replies, this is all on the cover, to which Superman replies, who is stirring some s- sort of like strange potion or soup in this big pot on an open fire. Superman says, Sorry, Jimmy, but as local witch doctor, I now pronounce you man and wife. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there's. Well, there's that, that,
1: that was quite a roller coaster ride, but I do remember I did have this one comic book, though. Uh, With Batman, and he had this like gorilla nemesis who was like really smart. And he had like this gun that would like transform people into these like Neanderthal, like gorilla human (laughs) hybrids. And he like wanted to turn everybody on Earth into these things. And Batman had to stop him. And in hindsight, you know, I liked it as a kid, but in hindsight, it sounds really (laughs) stupid.
0: Now, I think you meant to say you borrowed that comic because you accidentally said that you owned that one. And we've already
1: established that you didn't (laughs) own that comic gonna have to, you know, go up into the attic, in my old my old home, and try to find these so I can prove them to you. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe,
0: and review commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social, check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, com. Music for commute is provided by my main man Jason Salmons for J and I'm Dave Rob. We'll see you next week.
1: Now nah, there's no way he's listening. They don't get podcasts in prison. <laughs> <laughs>